This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. I'm Chris Sims. I'm the BC Director. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Kevin Lacey. Kevin, you are the Alberta Director, but I got to say, you and I first worked together when I was at Sun News Network, and you were the Atlantic Director, <laughs> and we were going after the blue nose, man. Uh, the only problem with the blue nose is that it, it was a boat that didn't float, is what I recall. Yeah, so that just uh, dates me but uh, from way back then. Yes, me remembering too. all that and maybe how long I've been here talking about these issues. Uh, but we'll have to uh, we'll take it on bigger and better issues now. Exactly. And we're still on the issue of government waste and the waste of taxpayers' dollars. Now, you are covering this stadium deal that turned into not being a stadium deal in Calgary. This is, of course, the home of the Calgary Flames and the NHL. What happened with that arena there? Well, look, in 2019, the city council voted to give half of a $550 million um, stadium to the Calgary Flames to play in. And taxpayers were worried then about this agreement. And a lot of people felt like, why are we giving all of this money to a hockey team that is profitable, that is incredibly valuable, um, at a time when taxpayers in Calgary are seeing a decline um, in both the services that are being provided and an increase in taxes. It didn't seem um, to make a lot of sense. And a lot of the critics back then said, look, this deal isn't going to work because the costs are going to go up. We're going to see uh, we're going to see these challenges meet the stadium uh, as we go forward. And lo and behold, they proved to be correct. Um, and just before Christmas, uh, Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek went out and, and basically threw up the white flag and said, we're not going to be able to do this deal. The Calgary Flames ended up walking away from it uh, precisely because uh, there wasn't enough taxpayers money um, already. So this is uh, but I think what really this leads to is that uh, the critics were right about this when the Taxpayers Federation first started criticizing this. Um, when this deal first came out, a lot of that uh, turned out to be true. And uh, I think in the end, the taxpayers in Calgary are going to benefit as a result of this deal going down. Now, a lot of us like hockey. Um, I can tolerate the Flames so long as we're beating them like we did in the 94 Stanley Cup playoffs way back when, again, dating myself. But this sounded like it was going to be bloody expensive. How much money are we talking about here? How much would have this cost taxpayers if the deal had gone through? Well, the one thing you can always count on with these stadiums is the price is always going to go up. So initially, the cost of this was about $550 million, uh, but that cost has escalated. So just this summer, uh, the Flames came to the city and said, look, we're not going to be able to go through with this um, with this." with this building because of the escalating costs of so the city said, okay, no problem. Um, we'll give another 12 and a half million dollars towards the, the, the building. Uh, and then we're now reaching here in December where costs are going up um, yet again. And taxpayers were already gonna pay through their municipal taxes. They were gonna pay um, through a, a ticket tax and the agreement was gonna last for 35 years. And while the Flames are gonna play in the building, the city was gonna own it. And that means they could have been on the hook for even more money in trying to keep this thing uh, running. And if there were any structural changes or, or that needed to get changed um, with regards to, to, to that arena. So look, this was gonna be a real albatross for a long time for taxpayers. You were gonna pay money to uh, billionaire owners. And I think one of the questions a lot of taxpayers were asking is, 
why are we contributing to this particular business and ensuring that these business owners get that much wealthier when we don't contribute to any of these other businesses, these small businesses, and or imagine how outraged people would be if they were contributing to say a Costco or a Walmart um, down the street from their house. Yeah, exactly. Um, it has you know similar footprint, right? Lots of people use it. You could make all those arguments. Now, what I found really interesting or amusing is that apparently it was the last minute strings that were being attached to this thing by the newly elected uh, city council there in Calgary. Uh, I hear that they were green strings. Uh, what was going on there? Yeah, like this is one of the uh, the stories of this. And I, I think one of the things that learning people, if you're not in Calgary and you're listening to this, um, we should really make you pause when, when politicians make pronouncements, they actually have consequences. So one of the things when the new mayor was elected, she went out and said, look, we're going to create, we're going to call, call this a climate emergency and that everything that happens now in the city will be viewed through this climate emergency and that building permits and, and anything else that the city does will have to pass these climate um, uh, checklist that the city put forward. Now, what uh, when she made that pronouncement, that's the same time the city went to the flames and said, look, we'll approve your development agreement for this arena that we're contributing to, but only if it has uh, changes to um, the roadway, but most importantly, that they wanted to add solar panels to the building to make it carbon neutral um, over the next 35 years that was going to cost more money and the flames essentially said at that point we're done like these the the benchmarks keep changing and we can't keep moving the ball every time you guys want to change uh, a public policy and now the city bureaucrats are going to come back and said oh don't no, that that had nothing to do with anything but all you have to do is look at the timeline uh you know one uh, politician says one thing uh, government acts on the license on the building permit um, at, a, at, a, at the same week, it's pretty hard to believe that those two things are not connected. And so anyone listening to this, when you hear these politicians add these things, which seem all, you know, very uh, virtuous, um, there's real world consequences. Uh, and this is a great example of, of one of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, when I heard that there were green strings, I was going to joke and say, were they going to force them to put solar panels on the roof to make avocado toast? Like, <laughs> but that's why. Okay, and they do. But it's, there's some irony here. The, the team is called the flames after the flame on the top of an oil refinery. Like, yeah. there's, there's actually like, there's a bit of irony in this whole thing that seems to be lost on the city and the mayor, which is runs this, this place. So yeah, I think I think though I think though like the 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 lesson here is about consequences yeah. and and that these things that politicians say that sometimes we 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 want to discount or uh, ma that it comes to, there's a real world uh, when rubber hits the road yeah. where this stuff really has an effect. Uh, on people's ability to do business. Oh, it's not just fluffy, empty words. Like in Vancouver, um, I'm going to drive down there in a minute here to go take a picture of the $1.76, nine per liter gasoline. Yeah, it's crazy, on yeah. The sign. They declared a climate emergency, you know, years ago. Now they're actually trying to make it law so that if you're building big new condo developments, you know, housing, which we need, you're not allowed to have a parking lot. Like yeah. no parking, not even for electric cars. Like, so when you start doing stuff like this, it does have real world consequences. So, 
All right. And so in Calgary, what's next though? Like, do the yeah. friends new, need a new place to live? Like what's going to happen? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two, two things which is going to happen now. Um, I think taxpayers can count on another debate on a state. I don't think this is unfortunately uh, the death of this deal, though I think a lot of us wish it would be. Um, there seems to be a lot of inertia by the city to try to re-kick up this agreement. And any agreement now is going to be worse than the one before. Uh, and just to give you a sense, the previous, the $550 million agreement that the city initially agreed to, uh, the direct in, uh, return on investment then was a negative. Um, so any deal now we start adding money is only going to make that that much worse. Um, so this deal could get worse before it gets better. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're going to be blowing the whistle on just how bad of a deal the first one was before we even get into uh, a second deal, which I think we're looking at to sometime in the summer. Man, make it stop. Uh, Kevin Lacey, thank you so much for updating us on this and uh, stick, stick with it. Thanks. You bet. All right, I'm joined now by my friend and colleague, our Quebec director, Renaud Broussard, and you're also in charge of the CTF Atlantic file. So you wear many hats here. And you were telling me something a couple of weeks ago that blew my mind. It must be a post-Christmas miracle. <laughs> Nova Scotia balanced its budget. How? I, I know, right? With these with these times of COVID, it seems like every single government is spending more than what they bring in. But uh, no, we actually have... Uh, in the Atlantic provinces, we now have two governments that have balanced their budgets. Uh, there's New Brunswick, now there's Nova Scotia, uh, that's spending a hundred million dollar surplus this year. But what's even crazier is that uh, even at the height of the pandemic, they also had a surplus. So they kept their streak of balanced budget uh, even during the, uh, even at the height of the pandemic. Now, when I hear surplus and I hear government instead of balanced budget, I'm like, <laughs> are you taking too much of my money? Like, what's the deal here? Where does it break down when it comes to spending? Well, uh, really, when it comes to spending, what they did, uh, unlike most other provinces, they, they didn't really see this as a window of opportunity, if I may uh, borrow our, our federal finance minister's words, uh, for a bunch of new expensive programs. Uh, they did have some new, some new spending nearly everywhere, but most of it was focused on healthcare. Mm. Uh, so it was not, you know, it, we're not spending more money on transits and buses and new computer systems. It just said, well, this is a health issue. So we'll put more money on health. Imagine that, how novel. And so I, I know, right? It, it's, it's, like it's, it's like it's rocket science for some of these guys. It's like, hey, folks, we've got a pandemic. Let's not boost our budgets on everything from corporate welfare to weird public art. <laughs> right? Let's focus on health. And you know, that is why we're running into major problems in places like Ontario. And at the federal level, it's just a dumpster fire. They're spending mm -hmm. money like a drunken frat party at the federal level. So it's good to see that at the provincial level, at least sounds like in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they're concentrating most of their new spending on health. Is that fair to say? It, it really is. And look, I I don't want to give I don't want to give them all the credit. Okay. Let's be clear. The main reason why uh, they're having a surplus right now is uh, sure they, they did hold the brakes a little bit of spending, still spending more, but not as much as some of the other guys. I'm looking at you, Doug Ford and Frost Wanna go up there. Um, but the main reason why is that when they when they made their budget. Uh, they thought everybody was going to make a lot less money than they're making right now. So they thought business closures would be a lot longer, a lot harder. 
turns out they weren't as hard. Turns out people were more resilient. Businesses were able to, uh, I don't want to say fully recover, but kind of Adapt. somewhat recover faster. Uh, yeah. So, so that is the main thing that helped. And unlike most other provinces, they also came into the pandemic with balanced budgets. Uh, so they didn't have a massive multi-billion dollar deficit. They started this thing with a, a couple of hundred million dollar surplus. Uh, the surplus shrank, but they still held a break on spending a little bit. Things ended up getting better. And as such, now they're, they're able to post a surplus. Okay, so is it just all roses now? Are they out of the woods looking in the future? Are they going to be good? Uh, they're not out of the woods yet. Okay. Uh, they're in a better position than others. Let's just put it this way. Uh, now, what they balance is the operational spending. So for a family, that's like what do you spend on groceries or on gas uh, every week. So that side of the budget is balanced. They're making enough money to cover that. Uh, but they're spending on a whole lot of capital projects. Uh, so to continue with the family analysis, while that part of the budget is balanced, uh, it's like they're, they're buying a new washer, renovating a kitchen, and, and doing all of these kind of things that do pile on the debt. Uh, so that is still going to go up by about $500 million this year. The other thing to keep in mind is that, uh, like every other province, Nova Scotia got a little bit more transfer payment from the feds. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some temporary transfer payments that federal government did to all provinces to help them fight COVID. Uh, so temporary health transfers that are not necessarily going to come back next year. Uh, so that's a little bit like uh, a family saying, you know, uh, right now we're doing fine because we just got this huge inheritance that we got. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going to get a huge inheritance next year. So it, they, they will still need to look at their spending, try and see what they can do to reduce it to a more uh, manageable level. But at least, unlike other provinces, they're not starting from a point where they're already billions of dollars in the red, even after getting the inheritance. Yeah, as our federal director, Franco Terrazano, had pointed out, yeah, don't get used to this. Don't bake yeah. in this COVID mess into your budgetary future plans. Uh, Renaud, thank you so much for this. It's at least good to find some shard of hope and good news in this huge mess. Uh, but going forward, they make sure they have to tighten their belts there regardless. Thanks so much, man. It's always a pleasure. All right, so I'm here with Franco Terrazano. He is my friend and the federal director of the CTF. So Franco, after all these uh, denials of nothing to see here, folks, CMHC and this group at UBC comes out with this brand new study pushing a surtax on the sale of our homes. So what's the deal with this report? What are they pushing? Before we get into the report, Simmer, we have to remind our audience that the CMHC is a federal crown corporation. Yeah. Right. So what does that mean? It means we just saw the liberals and the conservatives run around during the fall, during that election, promising Canadians, don't worry, we're not coming after your homes. Now we find out that the federal government was using our tax dollars to dream up new ways to hammer Canadian taxpayers and Canadian homeowners. Now, what's so bizarre is that this report was supposed to look at ways to reduce housing prices, but the big mines funded by the CMHC uh, they are actually recommending an annual tax on Canadian homeowners whose value is above a million dollars. Now, you wouldn't have to pay it until you sell the home or the house is inherited, but that tax bill would increase year after year after year and simmer. It could mean thousands and thousands of dollars for Canadian homeowners. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that blew my mind that they went through all this foo-for-all saying, nothing to see here. We're not looking at it. No way. <laughs> it's like, 
guys, we can see you. This is a study. It's funded by CMHC, which like you say, is a crown corp and it's pushing for higher taxes on the sale of our homes. Like this is what a home equity tax looks like. So what are the details of this specific report? They called it a surtax. Well, as I mentioned, it would hit uh, homeowners whose home is valued above a million dollars. But we have to remember here, that's not just going after these big fancy mansions. For starters, they estimate that this tax would hit 1.3 million Canadian homeowners. But let's look at reality here. If you own a home in Vancouver or Toronto, I mean, this tax is likely going to hit you. We were looking at some data from the Canadian Real Estate Association, and they estimate that the average home price in a place like Toronto or Vancouver is over a million dollars. So let's say you and your family, you bought your home in Vancouver 10 years ago, the average home, you sell it now 10 years later. Well, you could be faced with a tax bill of about 10 thousand dollars so this isn't just a few dollars and cents here and simmer let's talk about that one million dollar threshold i mean these politicians where i am in ottawa they've got these huge debts they have to pay back and is anyone would anyone really be surprised is if that they put in this tax and then they start to lower that threshold to hit more and more canadian homeowners we've already seen the ndp try to do this quite sneakily, right? Remember back in 2019 federal election, they wanted a wealth tax on people who have more than $20 million in assets. Well, in 2021, they pushed down that threshold to $10 million in assets. So you see how quickly these things can change here, don't you? Yeah, for sure. Goalpost moving is their favorite sort of soccer game to play. Um, (laughs) What really, again, to stress million bucks, Vancouver area, Toronto area, I know for most of our, you know, viewers across the rest of Canada, they're thinking a million dollar home. Wow, that must be some mansion with a heated pool. No, 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 no. This is nope. the average for a detached home. So your standard split level or your rancher in Vancouver, that is over a million dollars right now. And so this is going to nail a lot of people if something like this went through. But getting back to their stated purpose, they're saying that they want to increase affordability, that they want to reduce the price of homes and housing in Canada. Well, you know, color me crazy, but <laughs> don't add a big whopping tax onto the tax onto the price tag and you'll wind up uh, allowing for homes to be more affordable. But we're often asked this whenever I get an interview on this stuff, they say, okay, what's your solution, smart gal? How do we actually try to reduce the cost of housing in Canada? Well, you got to build more homes, not raise taxes, right? Yeah. And you, how do you build homes? With hammers and nails, not with tax hikes. Um, now, let's get back to that, that price tag and this recommendation here. I mean, they are recommending higher taxes to reduce, reduce home prices, but they've got it completely backwards. I mean, we know that higher taxes are not going to make homes less expensive because higher taxes make everything more expensive. So their recommendation here is like using a gas can to put out a fire. It's it's completely backwards. Uh, but Simmer, of course, as you know, this isn't the only time we've heard the little home equity tax birdie uh, squawking around. And that's why at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we put out a home equity tax calculator. You can find it at taxpayer.com. It looks at a bunch of different home equity tax proposals. And one of the things that we're really worried about here are the generations of our parents and our grandparents. They work so hard to buy that home and then they rely on the sale of their home to fund their golden years. Uh, But a home equity tax, let's say your parents or grandparents, let's say they bought their home in 1980 for about $250,000. They live in there for decades and they sell it today at about what, $1.2 million. 
while a home equity tax could cost them anywhere from $51,000 all the way up to $190,000. So that's tens of thousands of dollars that our parents, our grandparents can't use for the retirement. And they can't give it to their Gen X kids or their, their next generation of grandkids in order for them to either pay for their own homes on a down payment because they often do that to help or pay for their educations. Like this is money that would be taken out of these families and put into the pocket of the feds. Now you were doing some math last, last week on this. How much, how many days of spending would this cover? <laughs> Say they did this. Say they put through this tax that's in a study like the one we're talking about right now. Mm. Would this solve the healthcare crisis? You know, <laughs> would people join hands and sing? What would, what would this money do? Oh, well, the way the prime minister is spending these days, he would blow through it in less than five days. So not even a full work week. <laughs> wow. Okay. So they're already blowing money uh, left, right, and center, and they want to come after our money in our homes. And also young people too. Keep in mind, there's lots of young couples that have squeezed themselves into these tiny little condos. They're saving <laughs> every nickel they can of it. When they sell it, usually after they've had a couple kids, they want to put every dollar of that into the down payment for their next home. Maybe one that has a backyard for their kids. So the feds are reaching their their hands into the pocket here. It's just absolutely unfair. So this hits pretty much everybody who either owns a home right now or is aspiring to own a home, whether it's through goalpost moving or intergenerational wealth transfer, this is going to nuke them if it goes through. That's an if though. So how do we fight this? Well, there's a few ways, and, and we have two petitions. If you're interested in joining the fight, we have two petitions. The first petition, all on taxpayer.com, is just a no to a home equity tax. Say no to a home equity tax and send your politician a clear message. Now, the second petition, it's a little bit more nuanced, and it's just as important, and that's to remove the reporting requirement. So here's what's happened. In 2016, Ottawa made it mandatory to report the sale of your home even though it's tax exempt, capital gains tax exempt, with the Canada Revenue Agency. Now, we're left over here scratching our heads. Why do these, these CRA bureaucrats want to know how much you sell your home for if they're not going to tax it? Are they just curious? Hmm, I don't know, but I do not trust CRA bureaucrats for a minute. So sign those petitions. Now, what we're also doing at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we have the House of Commons. They're going to be coming back and they're going to be debating again shortly. And we're pushing every single member of parliament, whether uh, they're on the Liberals, the NDP, the Conservatives, we're pushing them to bring in a private member's bill to scrap that reporting requirement. These politicians, they say they don't want to come after our homes, but I don't trust politicians these days. So if they really want to prove that they're gonna protect Canadian homeowners. They need to take action. And that action is removing the reporting requirement to the CRA. Right on, man. Thank you for your work on this. We'll keep fighting. Hey, cheers. You bet. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.